Hello, everyone. Welcome to the BISA Portfolio Podcast, a podcast featuring the voices of members of BISA, I feel the leading financial services industry association. I'm Kenneth Cherrier. I'm the Chief Compliance Officer of Fidelity and Guarantee, also the Chief Compliance Officer of Fidelity, Guarantee, and Securities. It's a wholesaling broker-dealer. We do a lot of annuity business through banks, so I understand the business out there and really welcome and thankful for the support of BISA for that particular area. In this podcast, I'll be speaking to Kenra Kane of Arvest and Kevin Larson of Satera Financial Group. We're going to talk about two particular regulatory threads in the compliance industry today. I know you're dealing with a lot out there, and it's tough to just pick two of them. But we're going to be talking about off-channel communications and complex products through the lens of Reg BI, which gives you kind of a one plus one equals three aspect, I think. Folks, we're going to be taking a deeper dive on both of these concepts at the BISA's Regulatory and Compliance Summit, November 13th and 14th. But we kind of want to give you a precursor here during this call. So with that, let's jump right into it. Kendra, Kevin, can both of you introduce yourself to the listeners? Kendra, let's start with you. Thank you, Ken. Hi, everyone. My name is Kendra Kane, and I'm the Chief Compliance Officer for Arvest Wealth Management. I've been in the financial services industry for over 20 years, with 17 of those years dedicated to broker-dealer and registered investment advisor compliance within various bank programs. My main focus right now is keeping up with the regulatory requirements and the changes that impact our firm and our advisors. I'm an active member in the BISA Regulatory and Education Committee, which helps plan events and holds regularly scheduled calls covering compliance matters for our BISA members. I'm happy to be a part of today's podcast and look forward to the discussion. I'll turn it over to you, Kevin, to introduce yourself. Thank you, Kevin Larson. I've been in the financial services industry since 1995. I've been in compliance since 1999. I was the Chief Compliance Officer for Satara Investment Services for three years. Failed as a CCO, so they moved me over to risk management, where I've been in risk management for the last five years at Satera Financial Group for the holding company for Satera Investment Services. I love that. Failed as a CCO. If you're in (laughs) compliance and you haven't failed, then you haven't been in compliance long enough. That's right. There's just too much out there to comply with right now. I love it. So let's dive into uh, today's conversation. First, we're going to be talking about off-channel communications. This is a huge industry issue right now with regard to broker-dealers trying to capture all of that communication that the registered reps are doing with their clients, trying to plug and play with clients to give a, a positive experience to them, right? And there's people communicate differently. The issue here is the technology that's out there. There's so many different social media platforms. And there's only so many things that we can plug and play into our communication systems, capturing those off-channel communications, huge issue, huge fines out there from the SEC on the industry. They're in the second round of fines now. Let's start there. The first question I have is around how do your firms handle staff communications at your organizations? Do you treat home office staff differently than financial professionals? Kevin, let's start with you. Sure. Thanks for the question. As of right now, we don't. We treat them the same. We're still trying to, um, we're probably taking a conservative approach when we think about from an industry standpoint in that we are lumping all staff, home office, and registered reps in the field the same. So if you're registered, if you're associated with our firm, and you're going to be using something other than email, 
it's going to have to be connected to our supervisory systems. So if you're texting, if you're using instant messaging tools, everything has to be interconnected within our supervisory systems. At some point, we may adjust from that. But as of right now, we're taking this really conservative approach because a nine-figure fine is very real. And we want to make sure that we're taking the appropriate steps at this point. Excellent. Kendra, how does Arvest handle that? That you know, kind of looking at the difference between a registered rep who's out in the field versus a, a staff office person who's registered with the broker dealer? Yeah, I would say we treat staff a little bit differently, but more so related to their roles and the licenses that are held. So for those that we do require monitoring, we do, you know, we attempt, of course, to monitor all of their internal and external communications through those channels that we have approved. And, you know, right now, like you said, there's so many different channels and there's a lot of technology requirements. But right now, some of our approved channels are, of course, text messaging. We do allow and capture chatter, which is in Salesforce, Google Chat, Microsoft Teams, and all of this, of course, in addition to email correspondence. Excellent. So, so for both, a follow-up question there. How do you handle those administrative-type communications? Do you allow that business-related communication that's looked at as being an internal communication, not out to a client, do you allow those types of communications outside of approved channels? One thing that comes to mind is maybe using like a Teams or a WebEx where it's just your folks on the call and there's chat going on. Do you allow that type of administrative type communication outside your review framework? So I'll start with that. And we've taken the position that, you know, we understand people may have a personal relationship with people. So if you have a conversation like, hey, you want to go to the movie tonight or are we going to go out for ice cream? We allow those types of, you know, kind of personal type conversations as friendships to happen outside of the off-channel communications. We haven't allowed the administrative type conversations to happen outside of our approved systems because as human nature evolves, you know, that typical administrative type communication then leads into more of a business side. And if we're already off channel on the administrative side and it leads into a business side, then we're not capturing the conversation. So that's why as of right now, we've taken that position that all those communications have to be through our appropriate approved channels. Kendra, how about you? I would say we don't allow anything through off-channel communications that aren't captured if it's business-related. So I know that text messaging is very popular. We actually have a process today where we have company-issued devices that capture all text messages. So that's very helpful in trying to comply with this because those associates that do want to text just day-to-day things or anything business-related, we automatically capture because it's through that company device. Excellent. Excellent. There's a lot of options out there. And to that point, do you place any restrictions on what options or digital communications you allow your folks to use? It's a quickly evolving area with regard to social media. Do you have a blacklist or a whitelist concept? Or is there some platforms you just prohibit? Kendra, let's start with you. Sure. We do. We have restrictions and it really depends on the channel. As it relates to social media that you mentioned, We only permit the use of one right now, which is LinkedIn for business-related communications, digital communications, and that's with our licensed associates. We have guidelines around their use and how they're going to use that for business purposes. For instance, we don't allow for mass marketing of products or, you know, things of that nature through LinkedIn. All other digital communications like websites and videos, those all require review and pre-approval before they are published. 
Yeah, same thing from us. It has to be on our pre-approved list. If someone wants to go out and use, let's say, Salesforce Chatter, you would have to come into the home office for review purposes. We'd have to make sure that we're actually able to capture and retain those messages and supervise accordingly. I know working with the different vendors, it gets challenging because there's a lot of implementation that takes place. So yeah, we would be actively engaged in working with those reps and would have to be on a pre-approved basis. So along those lines, there's just so many new things popping up. It seems every time we get done with due diligence on one social media or new communications channel, requests come in for four more new ones that have popped up. As both of your firms implement these new vendors and look at these requests for new types of communication venues, if you will, are there any information security requirements or other requirements that those systems have to have that you look at when looking to implement these new platforms? Kevin? Yeah, I know our information security team is involved with these conversations, especially if there's any type of PII involved. Then they start talking about NIST standards. They start talking about SOC 2s. They start talking about a lot of penetration devices that are in place for testing purposes. So our information security team is pretty engaged. You know, any type of these vendors come up and in any time there's NPI, PII involved, they're heavily involved. Ender? I would say similar approach. You know, we work closely with our vendor management, third-party risk management teams to determine, you know, if it's appropriate to add on a new vendor or a new communication channel. First, we need to make sure that's able to be captured by our application that we use for electronic record keeping and surveillance. And then we, of course, want to know how they're handling our information and what are their safeguards. In terms of vendor review, you know, we review several things, but some include, in addition to the capabilities of being able to perform their services, we want to know if they're a foreign provider, if they have understanding of our customer protection rules, and to the extent that they use subcontractors, or sometimes we call them fourth parties, how are they used? So different considerations, but I'd say very similar to Kevin's remarks. Excellent. Just kind of summing this up, overall, what do you think the biggest items or things that we've seen in the past year or two, what are the biggest learning opportunities we've had? That's another way to say failure on this subject. You know, from my perspective, I kind of put the pieces together between the federal sentencing guidelines, which we don't really think about sometimes where our head is always down in the broker dealer industry and we forget that we don't live in a bubble and there's federal sentencing guidelines out there that have started to look at this area, off-channel communications and what, what corporations are doing to capture that and provide that when they find issues. But tying that together with the recent SEC enforcement actions, very eye-opening and very clear. What we've done is take our initial and already built communications review programs and added to our nomenclature on our Boolean search list, which we have to say off-channel or listed in several social media platforms, which we don't allow. So we're using our controls that we have today to look for those unauthorized communications that those advisors might have in mind. And again, looking back to those federal sentencing guidelines on what it is we're learning there and in general corporate America, if there's any learning opportunity there. But Kendra, I'll go back to you. What does our best do in, in that area of taking a step back and looking? What is it over the past two years, year that we've seen that's a learning opportunity for us? Yeah, it's clearly a focus of the SEC. I think the fines that are associated with these cases are just unprecedented. I think, you know, one of the biggest takeaways is that we try to avoid relying solely on just general training and, 
and attestations. And we really feel like we need to have the tools available to monitor and capture these communications and then clear guidelines on the channels that are prohibited that we're unable to capture just so that everyone's clear. I do like your suggestion about making sure you have lexicons within your channels that you do monitor to be able to look for use of unapproved channels. So that's also something that I wanted to comment on as well. Excellent. Kevin. Yeah, I think we as a as an industry has really rapidly evolved over the course of the last four years in that we are a lot more accustomed to now, instead of doing face-to-face conversations with people, digital communications has become a very important part of every representative's business with their clients. So email, I mean, at this point, we're talking about, you know, kind of internal conversations around is email still valid when you start thinking about all of the texting that reps want to do with clients because you hear it over and over again that clients don't read their emails, but they read their text messages. So there's just been this evolution that has taken place through these digital communication tools. And it's how do we get ahead of that and making sure we're capturing all that information. It's been challenging these last couple of years when you start thinking about how all of these tools have evolved. And you've had one tool that was approved for one thing three years ago, and now they've slipped in a component that allows for chatting back and forth. So now you have to take that step back and start looking at all of these vendors then on an ongoing basis. So it's been a challenging environment when you start thinking about this specific topic. Yeah, it's very clear. So everyone understands, and I think we're all on the same page, that FINRA has been very clear. If you can't capture it, you are not allowed to use it. And there are just some platforms out there that have, they don't have the functionality to plug and play with our communication systems that we have in place today to capture those. There's no API feeds. There's no data feed. Sometimes there's social media platforms that delete those messages. And that's the intriguing thing about that platform. If you can't capture it, you can't use it. Underlying message there. Hey, folks, we're going to take a deeper dive on this for sure. Off-channel communications is not going away. And the Compliance Summit, there'll be more to share and network on that particular topic. But in the interest of time, let's jump to our other hot topic and transition over. And let's talk about complex products. FINRA has taken the stance back in the day, which was a Tuesday, I believe, that they used to come out with notice to members and then regulatory notices on product-specific. Maybe it was uh, an indexed product or a an inverse ETF or options, they've done a very good job, in my opinion, of building together a great library on what products they would consider to be complex. And so I think we have a very good foundation and understanding from FINRA's perspective of what a broker-dealer really should be doing with regard to due diligence, training, exception reports, and what the registered rep of that broker-dealer should be doing with that particular client as, again, training, maybe an additional form or disclosure to the client. I think we've got a pretty good handle around that. But what's interesting is now you introduce best interest. And we already have these more elevated standards, which we're trying to comply with to meet a best interest standard. And then you introduce kind of an oil and water concept, almost a complex product into that. And it makes a one plus one equal three type equation. So first, I'm wondering uh, some scenarios here. Kevin, let's start with you. If an RR must take additional training and spend more time in their due diligence of soliciting a complex product, can that registered rep be compensated for that higher work effort and still meet the best interest standard? 
Well, my answer is no, but I'd like to hear what you have to say, Ken. <laughs> it's it's as your as your responsibilities. We all have various levels of of education and regulation that we have to follow. I mean, that's just that's our that's the profession we live within. So for a representative to you know expect you know additional level compensation either from that client or from the you know respective wealth broker dealer just because they have to live by a higher standard, that's the price of doing the business that we're in. It's the responsibility we have within our profession. Kendra, does our best take a similar stance? Yeah, I would say, and as it, comes, as it pertains to compensation, you know, we want to make sure that we're really in line with industry standards on commissions for certain products. And I know some firms cap, some firms don't, but you definitely don't want to be the outlier and when it comes to commissions on complex products. Not related to compensation, but the expectation just on complex products in general. I mean, registered reps do have that required level. They need to do, you know, higher level of training and spending more time on complex products, not just on the front end, but also when they're explaining those complex products to their customers, they really need to be thorough and make sure that they understand them as well. I was going to say, I think we're three for three here. The standard is the standard. The standard doesn't open the door for someone to get paid more. The standard opens the door for better education, for better communication, for better transparency. But just because there's a higher standard that needs to be met, I don't think equates to a justification for someone putting more in their pocket. In fact, I would argue the opposite, that as you get more transparent, more communication, more open markets, margins drop. That is a fact that's just a mechanism of our markets, right? We look at the fixed income industry and as more and more transparency came into that, your 5%, your 4%, your juice, if you will, started to dry up a little bit. And that's good. That's appropriate. That puts more money back in the client. So I would agree with both of you from a philosophical concept that just because you have a higher standard and there's more work that needs to be put in, I don't necessarily feel that's a justification for someone to be compensated more it's probably the opposite. Your margins are going to shrink a little bit, which is good for the client in the end. And I think in the end, good for the industry. Competition's good. It makes us be more effective, more efficient. But I think we're all on the same page there. I also think those representatives that actually do that and do it very well, they'll actually get a larger share of the client's wallet. So they'll actually get paid more because they'll actually be advising under more assets and controlling more assets of that client. So I think we all just witnessed and heard why Kevin failed at compliance. He turned compliance into a revenue generating. Exactly. Concept. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> so let's look at another scenario here when we're talking about complex products within a best interest world. Kendra, let's start with you. Under the best interest standard, does a client have to fully understand all of the functionality of a complex product? Or can that registered rep and broker-dealer meet the standard if just the registered rep and broker-dealer understand the functionality of the complex product? Maybe not everything about it, but they get the gist. It might be a softball question, but we want to make sure folks are understanding you know, the <laughs> level of expectation that the SEC and FINRA are going to have when selling a complex product under that standard. Do you really have to know every single bell and whistle? or just the gist of that product, is that going to be sufficient in a best interest world? Well, I think so much of what we were just talking about, 
selling complex products puts a stronger requirement on the advisor to be able to understand it in a way that a client can fully comprehend and the client be able to explain it back as well. They should be able to understand the, the product features, the risks, costs, also know how those products react in certain markets and the terms associated with those products. The so complex products have different terms and liquidity issues sometimes, and so you want to make sure that the client understands all those features. I don't think anyone would say, well, the client really doesn't need to understand it fully as long as the rep understands it, that's fine. So, you know, and this is where disclosures come in too, not that you want to rely solely on disclosures, but you want to be able to put all the information in front of the client so that they have it and they can and review and determine as well if this is in their best interest. Kevin, your thoughts? Yeah, clients need to understand the, the complex product elements. Anytime there's a customer complaint, anytime there's an arbitration, you know, the client's going to have to articulate back what they knew about the product. Same thing with the registered rep, same thing with the broker-dealer. So it's really in the best interest of the rep to sit down with that client, not only up front to make sure they fully understand that product, but then on an ongoing basis. If you're meeting with that client on an annual basis, make sure you're pulling out your statement Sitting down with that client, do they understand if it's a variable annuity, understanding the death benefits, the income riders. So that way there's not that so that way there's this constant reminder of what are the different elements of that product. So that you don't go five years and the client suddenly forgets everything they talked about day one. You know, I would agree with both of you. I think if the client doesn't understand the complexities of the product, speaking from an enforcement and regulatory compliance angle that client is always going to have a put against you to get their money back. And to, and to continue that options analogy, I have a very, very good friend who is uh, a FINRA arbitrator and tells a story about uh, a 78-year-old woman walking into an arbitration and one of the first questions out of the attorney's mouth and questioning her in that arbitration was, what did you understand about these option strategies? And the beautiful old lady says, well, you know, my advisor told me about these puts in places and how they could help me, which she meant to say was puts in calls. The other side quickly asked for a timeout and they settled within 30 minutes. Complex products, the client is going to need to understand how they react in an environment that changes, how they work. And if not, you as a broker dealer, you as a registered rep, I think are accepting that business knowing and should know that the client's always going to have a put against you at that point if they don't understand. I think we're all on the same page there too. Excellent. So let's look at a final question here. What are some of the common steps that broker-dealers and registered reps take when selling complex products to meet the requirements of best interest at your shops? Kendra, let's start with you. I think the registered rep should feel confident that the client has the level of sophistication to understand the material features of the products and, you know, all the things that we discussed earlier regarding these complex products. Also, considering other available products that may be used to meet customer objectives and knowing the differences in their terms and risks and costs and really understanding what that means to the customer. Also, being able to document what was discussed and also the reasonably available alternatives that were considered. One other thing I would say is that broker-dealers may want to consider whether they want to limit the percentage of a client's net worth or liquid net worth in these products. And so that would be important for firms to put some guidelines out there if they feel that's necessary to make sure we're not too heavily weighting these clients in some of these complex or alternative products. Excellent. Kevin, your thoughts? Yeah, so we've done a couple different things as well. 
we've looked at our due diligence standards when looking at the firms and, and the offerings of their complex products to making sure that they're in line with what our standards would be. So maybe we had standards five, 10 years ago of a sponsored company that have evolved to something more today based upon those standards to making sure that we are meeting our obligation, obviously, as a firm. You know, we've added in some additional questions from a profiling standpoint to make sure that we're capturing more information around that client to make sure that our supervisors that are sitting down with that application, looking at it to make sure that that product truly is in the best interest of the client. So we've tried to take multiple layers in addition to the ongoing training of that representative and disclosures to that client for meeting the best interests. Excellent. The culture has changed. The concept of complex products that evolved with FINRA, the elevation of the standard to best interest. It was 15 years ago, I remember watching a conference where a wholesaler of a large annuity company was explaining to folks in the audience that a variable annuity with lots of bells and whistles wasn't bad because it had lots of bells and whistles. He used the analogy of a car. He said, I can step into an old car and I can roll that window down and I can turn the knob on the radio and I can explain to you how that window goes down when I turn the knob and how that radio changes the channel when I turn the knob. But that might not necessarily be the best car for my client. The best car might be the car where they sit in and the seats warm up and the windows go down when I press a button and I press a button over here and the radio changes the channel. He said, I might not be able to explain why that functionality works, but that doesn't mean it's not the right product for my client. And I think very clearly that analogy does not hold up in today's world anymore. The standard of best interest and the requirements that we have as an industry to comply with the complex product sales, clearly you have to understand the mechanics of when you push those buttons, what happens and why. And again, that might be more work, might put more onus on us to do more education and to become better at what we do, but ultimately that standard's higher and I think that's where we're at. So I want to thank you both very much for your time. A lot of industry experience. Very, very good conversations. Kendra, Kevin, any, any final thoughts on any particular area? Otherwise, looking very, very forward to uh, seeing you out at the compliance meeting. Yes, Ken. Um, right now, we're having conversations with our vendor who handles our monitoring of electronic communications. And we're talking about the extent to which they use artificial intelligence to help improve our surveillance efforts, make it more of a meaningful review, but also how they plan to use our data to accomplish it. Excellent. Now, everyone, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review this cast so you won't miss future uploads. And please share the podcast and join the conversation on social media. Looking forward to seeing everyone out at the conference, the, the Compliance Summit, November 13th and 14th. And thank you very much for your time.